Showtime, and we're live. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Lunar Crush Live. I am flying solo today. It's episode 116. I'm joined by Halsey Miner here in a second, CEO and founder of Vivid Labs. Excited to go through his history. He spent a lot of time in tech. Excited to dive into that and also see what they're building over there at Vivid Labs. Sounds like they're working on an NFT publishing platform. A lot of different pieces to that that we're going to go through. Um, as always, our disclaimer, we do not take payment for our live stream. We bring on exciting people, fun people, people that have dedicated their careers and lives to this space and the cryptocurrency, Web3, NFT industry, whatever we're calling it nowadays. Next week on our live stream, we've got Vayner3, a Web3 consultancy coming on. It'll be super fun to go through that. So please stay tuned for that. And uh, we're going to get into it. So let's hit this intro and uh, let's have some fun. Alzi, welcome to the show. I like your intro video. Got a little smile out of you there. <laughs> Very well, Thank three you. of you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so we always like to start every show. Where are you in the world and what's it like there today? Um, I'm in Los Angeles and it's been between 85 and 89 every day. A little, little balmy there. I'm just, just south of you in, or in Orange then, County. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know. Wintertime, 77 degrees, summertime, 87, wintertime, 77, uh, summertime, 87, sort of paradise yeah. if you don't have to drive. Do you surf? Not well. Really <laughs> um, but, yeah, today today's one of those days. It's just so beautiful here. You know, I, I always tell people coming to Southern California, you know, even though they want to come visit in the winter, it, it's all about. It's all about coming in the summer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say, it, honestly, it's 65 in the winter. So not so bad. Love it. Um, so I, I did a little research. You've got, um, you had, you've had quite the epic ride in tech over the years. I, I'd love to hear your story and your background um, and what, what your career has kind of looked like over the years. Okay, so so it's 27, eight years. I'll try to kind of speed through. So I started uh, CNET Networks in 1993. <clears throat> um, at the time, there was no way of publishing content on the internet other than by hand, you know, hand coding. Um, so I created a web publishing platform, which I spun out. Uh, they became an $11 billion company um, and the fastest growing software company to $500 million ever. Um, and in 2000, uh, in 1998, um, CNET was, was put in the NASDAQ 100. It was the fastest company ever to make the NASDAQ 100. It took five years from start. Uh, during that period, only Yahoo and CNET made the NASDAQ 100 during the 90s. Um, and on, uh, on January 2000, or, or sorry, February 2000, when I left, um, unlike most internet companies, uh, we had earned a billion and a half dollars. 
Um, a big chunk of that came from spinning out vignette, which we uh, kept 35% of. Uh, and I left because uh, Salesforce went live on uh, on uh, January of 2000. Um, I was a co-founder and the second largest shareholder of Salesforce for the first six years. Uh, when I stepped down from CNET, I spent four and a half years building Salesforce. Wow. Uh, I rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange with uh, Mark Benioff. Um, and I went off the board. Um, and at that time, um, I started uh, my interventures, which is where I started cloud-based companies myself. So um, if anybody's familiar with Google, Google Voice, I started that as part of my interventures in my office. Um, about 5% of global DNS uh, runs through OpenDNS, uh, which we started and uh, uh, Cisco bought for $640 million. Um, when crypto came around in 2012, I was very interested. 2013, I started a company now called Uphold, um, which is uh, certainly not the size of uh, Coinbase, but I think it's something on the order of 5 million. Um, um, it's a, a multi-billion dollar company that, um, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, obviously kind of competes in the in the web wallet native, um, native to brave as well right that's like one of their first yeah yeah i mean yeah. a lot of people know them too brave yeah yeah um you know a lot of people uh uh i don't even talk about it but i actually started a search engine in um 1998 which was bought by nbc and named nbci um so the total I've now created six companies worth more than $2 billion and the total is about $285 billion. And the number of people who visit websites of companies that I've started is about $320 million a month now. Um, and uh, Vivid Labs um, originally started uh, as a platform uh, for using um, unused hardware on the uh, on the on the internet for doing video processing, um, <clears throat> and uh, as a competitive to uh, Amazon and and other uh, centralized providers, um, for a variety of reasons, that was a very very um, very difficult thing to to do. Um, one of the experiences at Salesforce was the first uh, two or three years, uh, companies, as you can imagine. Uh, were not willing to put their customer data in a website, um, and they they didn't trust uh, they didn't trust the company they didn't trust the security, um, and most importantly, it was outsourcing because um, uh, typically companies would spend sixty million dollars for CRM software, uh, and Salesforce was sixty dollars per person per month, and you could get up. And instead of two years, you could get up in two, in two months or maybe sometimes even two weeks. Uh, <clears throat> so that was a real battle. And what I noticed when we built out all this wonderful infrastructure was, you know, all the big media companies said, you know, where's my video being processed? Um, and we're like, well, we don't know. It's all around the world, servers. And um, they're like, well, you know, if uh, the movie gets out, over the scenes before the movie get out, before the movie gets out, you realize you've completely destroyed our our business. 
Um, and it was deja vu all over again. And I didn't want to spend another three years trying to con convince people that uh, using unused data capacity in, in uh, data centers, which is about 30% of all computers today, um, is the equal of using Amazon. Right. Um, and so we started looking at NFTs and we uh, came at NFTs from a completely different uh, perspective. Um, and it was a bit of an evolving, um, it was a bit of evolving uh, concept, but first we recognized that we could do things like two hour movies, NFTs because of all of our infrastructure. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, as we started really deeply thinking about what uh, an NFT could be, um, we, we realized that we could fundamentally transform the idea um, of NFTs. And I'm going to talk about August 17th in a moment because it's going to be a very big day. Um, but what we realized was NFTs don't have to be a single JPEG. They can be um, any number of files up to 32 gigabytes. Uh, we support 200 different kinds of files. So we support all, all audio and video formats. Uh, we support PDFs, Excel, Word. Um, we support, support AR. We support uh uh, you know, really uh, 3D objects we support. So, so what this means is you can uh, you can create an NFT that has a basket of content. It's not just a single object. Um, and uh, and and your your imagination can run wild in terms of what kind of content you want to put in. And sort of the coup de gras, the sort of the ultimate, I think, realization that we made. That's that's I think going to proves to be utterly transformative to the industry is we realize that NFTs should be updatable. And that means that when I buy an NFT, the creator should still be able to send me content over time and that there should be the ability by uh, uh, sending content uh, to sort of maintain a community with your buyers um, and, to, and to continue to provide uh, additional value um, and of course, it opens up entirely new use cases. Um, the reason I brought up August 18th is because I think it's going to be probably one of the most important days in uh, the history of the NFT market to date, um, because that's when we'll place our first multi-asset um, um, NFT uh, on OpenSea. Uh, without OpenSea doing any engineering at all. Um, so you'll be able to go to OpenSea and you'll be able to uh, um, have access to the full NFT. So have audio and video and all kinds of PDF files and all kinds of stuff that we've created. Um, and then we're going to update it on the marketplace. So uh, every three or four days, we'll put another asset that will show up on the marketplace. Please don't buy it <laughs> because we're putting it there. We're putting it there so that people can, can experience it. I don't know what, what price we're going to put on it, but one that we, it deeply discourages people from buying it. I, I'd be I'd be careful. Um, you never know. You never know what this space, what the community can do. You let the but, internet run with it, and it's a, a whole new game. But what's extraordinary is um, we have a platform. Um, we have Pro. We have Shopify. And the on the 18th, 
uh, it'll be the launch of our app on iOS and Android um, that actually allowed that NFT to be created. So I can just take my phone, I can do a video, audio, da, 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 you know, pull it all out of, you know, or my iPad, I can put all that content in. Uh, I click uh, mint. Uh, I, you know, send it to MetaMask um, and uh, I connect with OpenSea and then I can now sell my, um, uh, my NFT on OpenSea. So what, what will show up on OpenSea, it will be the graphic picture of the, you know, like all single JPEG, GIF, whatever it is that, that's there. Uh, it'll say on the top of it, uh, it'll say Vivid Advanced NFT, uh, and you'll be able to click, and then you'll be able to go through um, uh, our player uh, that'll give you access to all the additional media, um, as well as the media that gets updated. Or you can click and experience that on your phone. So the the whole you know idea you know when I first started approaching this, um, you know obviously it was very exciting to see communities uh, evolving around uh, NFT projects. Um, you know, um, you know the one thing I've done uh, uh, in my life. Um, uh, reasonably well was um, CNET was a $500 million a year content company. Um, that's back in 2000. And um, we also produced five TV shows, uh, four on USA, one on sci-fi, uh, one CNBC. And um, uh, Ryan Seacrest's first two shows were actually, um, uh, he, he hosted two of our shows. So, <clears throat> So you know, I've done content, and the the fear that I had about um, the NFT equation um, was that the amount of content that's being uh, sold is not sufficient in the long term to maintain the kind of value um, that people expect. There's an equation. Um, in content, um, some content is just worth more than others. Um, and so if I can send you uh, an, uh, an album with 11 songs um, that has uh, cover art, that has videos of people in the studio rehearsing the song, if it can have videos of people, um, of artists, um, writing the songs, if I can put all of that together into a, you know, into a package, uh, and then I can update it with tour schedules, et cetera. Um, that content uh, has value. It has significant, significant value. And so um, we've been working um, incredibly hard over the last two years to make this work. Um, and so just in conclusion, um, our pro version allows uh, companies to create their own white label marketplaces, which um, has all of our content features, which will then give them their buyers the ability to, to take that content to secondary markets, uh, which is now possible. Uh, we've shoehorned all that functionality into Shopify. Um, Shopify is in beta, but uh, it won't be long before they uh, come out of beta and people can just choose us as an app, 
then they can um, use all of our features. And then, of course, on the 17th um, is the law is the launch of the, the app. We've spent a year building um, first for iOS, then for uh, for Android. Um, so, so in in you know in summation, um, you know our goal has been to you know create um, media infrastructure. Um, they can deliver really high value content. So we can do two hour streaming movies, uh, for instance. Um, and, you know, as long as it's under 32 gigabytes, uh, you can put as much content, you know, as you want into the individual NFT. So August 18th, 17th, uh, that's, we should, we should be on OpenSea and the app should be available for, uh, for downloading. Well, thank you for that. That summary, a lot to unpack there. You know, I want to start with, you know, you, you identified the problem that I think a lot of people in this space have been trying or you're solving what a lot of people are, are talking about solving, which is basically cloud, you know, for decentralized ledger technologies, right? Like it's the it's the missing piece there of, of delivery and storage um, that that we just don't have. And so you, you started to kind of solve that problem and then said, you know, hey, I'm not sure I want to go down the path again of saying, hey, I'm going to kind of be this infrastructure layer of having computer storage for everyone across all the different apps. But you said, hey, I found a really epic application for that, which is, you know, taking something that is, you know, in the name non-fungible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be updated or can't be, there, there exactly. can't be an iteration on that, right? The, the non-fungible piece is the ownership piece. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, um, you know, because of the of what we do, of what we can do, we have um, you know really uh, kind of interesting uh, customers. Like, for instance, uh, we have a law firm uh, that wants to use us to um, to take last will and testaments and put them on the blockchain, but they want to also have. Um, a video from the person whose will it is explaining all of the decisions that they've made and why, because those, those never show up in the legal document. And so you get these absolutely brutal fights, particularly when there's a lot of uh, value um, at, uh, in jeopardy. Um, you have these, you know, decade long fights uh, over what was really the intention of the person who who signed the uh, um, who signed the will, <clears throat> they'll question whether the person was of sound mind and body. They'll mm -hmm. question whether they were outside in the rain when they were being forced to. to they'll question whether the the signature is actually real. You know, is that is that the one that was signed? Um, and they're they're you know all of these opportunities to provide um, in addition to that they can also do things like leave messages for loved ones and and uh, um, so it's a it's a really um, you know, it's a really interesting use case, but like you said, if I want to update my uh, will, I just update it on the blockchain, um, and and that becomes 
and that becomes the new the new the new will because we know the we know the uh, the order in which these things were were uh, you know were were put put in place. Um, so so I, I I believe that we're on the cusp of a major expansion in the utility of uh, NFTs, not just what we're doing. I think there are a lot of other companies doing very interesting things as well. Um, and, and we got this, you know, this is not, a, this is not atypical, you know, we had this burst of activity and this burst of money and this burst of excitement, uh, which quite frankly was kind of like the early days of the internet only condensed down to about a year and a half. <laughs> um, and then it kind of like calms down and then you start, it starts building back up again with, uh, you know, with, with really solid, uh, and important use cases. And that's kind of where I think we are now. So I, that was one of my questions. So you do hear a lot of people say, you know, web, web three is where the internet was in 96 or 98 or whatever year they pick. But, you know, do you, do you buy that analogy of, you know, this is like internet, like kind of going through that scene at life cycle scene, that kind of bus kind of cycle and going through it. I mean, is, is it as monumental as that? Well, it, <clears throat> it's hard to know because we know, like when I started in 93, <clears throat> uh, we'll actually launch CNN on 95, uh, mm -hmm. April of 95 on the internet, uh, along with our TV programming. Um, I had no idea how big the internet was going to be. Um, I did it because it was something I was passionate about. I was on the internet in 1989, actually, on the well, um, on a text-based uh, virtual world called Lambda Move from Park. Um, so, and I, I was always uh, a voracious reader of, of technology magazines. And so sort of my, you know, perfect job was to turn a website into, you know, to take on the magazines and use the web as a better way of delivering information. Um, but, you know, I had no clue how big, uh, no, I, I thought, I thought the internet was going to be big, but I mean, you know, I mean, the internet's big, I mean, yeah, it's paradigm shit. big, big, yeah. bigger than anyone could ever have imagined. And, um, and so all of us, I mean, Jerry Yang at Yahoo, I mean, Yahoo, we just started categorizing, um, started categorizing uh, websites on a s server at Stanford. And, you know, he was just screwing around. And and um, so none of us knew really how big it was. Um, you know, now I've got companies, Salesforce, CNET, that are 20, 25 years old. So you've seen, um, you know, the maturation of those companies, how big they can get, how many different things they can do. I think we're just right now in a very early stage of Web3. I think you know, we're going to need 10 years to look back on it and say, you know, is that really um, as fundamental as the invention of the internet itself? Um, uh, you know, I certainly know there are, you know, certainly a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of possibility in Web3, um, but sort of measuring it against the, the birth of, you know, maybe one of the most important technologies outside of fire, is uh you know is is probably going to take a little time for us to to learn and be able to kind of look back and see yeah that that was my that that's a good way to to phrase it is the <laughs> is web3 as monumental as fire and the internet because i would put those two potentially together in that category and 
it feel it does feel like it feels like something different. You know, it's it's more it's more global. It's faster. You know, it's like when I think much about, faster. I think about companies. You know, there's all these like and you know you've done. Mm -hmm. it sounds like you've done a lot of venture too. You know, and when things were kind of hot, people were like, I don't understand these valuations. I don't understand any of this. And part of the reasoning I feel is because you know if you're an Uber you know, and you've got this, you know, if the equation is what's the total addressable market times, whatever the team times, whatever you've got, if the Uber's got a seven by seven area and they're like, well, we're going to go to Austin next, or we're going to go to New York. And we're trying to figure that addressable market out. That's a whole different thing than, Hey, I can launch something and instantly have access to the entire planet, you know, or anyone connected to the internet, I guess. And so it's a, just a, there's such a, a more rapid pace there for founders oh. and for people starting. I, I, I grew at the pace when CNET launched, there were about 350,000 people on the internet. I grew at the speed of the internet. Yeah. Um, now CNET was in a very rare, so we were, you know, content companies don't generate $500 million a year, even today. Um, and um um, I mean, there's very few websites out there that are content that are doing $500 million mm -hmm. in, in revenue. But what was, um, you know, we were, <clears throat> the search engines were, all, you know, Google and Yahoo, you know, they were all the, the, the largest uh, companies in terms of revenue, you know, back then. But the reason that we were so large and so successful um, was because everybody getting on the internet needed a computer and they needed software. And so there was a one-to-one -one correlation between people on the internet and people using and buying computers. And so we, we, we were um, uh, sort of made ourselves an in indispensable utility for figuring out what kind of web browser you wanted or, you know, and it was a very dynamic time, a lot of products coming out, yeah. a lot of software coming out, uh, a lot of innovation happening. Um, and so we, we profited, um, you know, off of that by, you know, by, you know, we, 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 I think if you took the next 10 computer websites and you added them up, they didn't equal the traffic. Um, I mean, we were typically, our traffic was typically around equal to Salesforce. I mean, no, sorry, Amazon or eBay uh, around that time. Um, I think when I left, we were the 13th uh, largest uh, website in the world. But I mean, that was in 2000. That wasn't a big number. Um, and so, you know, um, you know, you can in a week kind of gain more people now than, you know, I got in, you know, a, a year and a half or two years uh, just because of the, the scale of the of the Internet now and and how international it is. You know, um, it, it was a it was very much an American phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and then now, now that's just really not the case. Not, not that America doesn't have some of the biggest companies still, but but there's 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 a lot of great international companies as well. Obviously China's its own thing. What, what was it like, like scaling that for those users at that time with the infrastructure that was available to you guys? Well, so, <clears throat> I mean, the interesting thing was there was no database, there was no web publishing system that used a database. I mean, you have to think about how, how raw this was. I mean, there was HTML 1.0 um, 
And all of our content, if you go back to the Wayback Machine and you go back to 95, whatever, and you look, you'll see all of our content was center aligned. Yeah. There was no tables or any any of this stuff and little teeny graphics and and um <clears throat> and uh I mean it was really you know a lot of the magazines and the newspapers, you know, they they weren't afraid because they looked at our little graphics and they're like, okay, yeah, well whatever. You know, who's who's really gonna wanna be, you know, be interested in that. Um <clears throat> it was uh it was a very difficult time. So so anyway, so so I, I had to build my own software to do web publishing because I wasn't going to hire a thousand people to, to do um, panned HTML, which is what everyone was doing. Um, and um, there really weren't any engineers who had experience on the Internet outside of uh, universities and the military and Bell Labs and Bell Corps. And so um, I ended up, um, even though I was in San Francisco, I hired all of my engineers in Washington, New Jersey, because they all came out of Bell Labs and Belcor, uh, who were experiencing problems at that time. And so, you know, my first 50 engineers were were um, easily the equivalent of Google's first 50 engineers, all PhDs, a lot of Carnegie Mellon, MIT, et cetera. Um, and, and so we, um, I, I had a, a guy who had um, run a document management system for Belcor and Belcor, um, you know, for people who don't remember way back then, uh, you had long distance companies like AT&T and then you had local companies um, um, who, you know, local um, uh, telephone companies and they, they were separated. And uh, there were, I think, six of them. And Belcor was for those phone companies and Bell Labs for AT&T. We all know Bell Labs is the, you know, they invented the, transistor and fire and wheel <laughs> and, you know all this stuff um so i hired the, the head of multimedia out of bell labs and um and so um uh, one of the guys i hired out of belcor um had created a document management system for um px's that you know run in these big sophisticated pbx's that run in in, in local uh you know phone in, in your your local phone company. Um, and so uh, we got him and a team to build um, the first web publishing system. And then um, I didn't want to be competing in web publishing and in the publishing business. So I spun it out. We kept 35% uh, of the company. Uh, 18 months later, I sold half to Goldman Sachs for $10 million and thought it was a genius. And then in another two years, the other half was worth $1.3 billion. <laughs> um, but the but the hard part was, I mean, you know, we were an Aztec owner company. We were profitable. Uh, very few companies were. Most companies were wildly unprofitable. Um, and it was very hard to run a, a real business um, where, um, you know, there was like so much. The whole world ran on FOMO. Um, and, you know, Yahoo, and who was huge at the time, and CNET, we had the same problem. We lost 25% of our employees every year uh, because there were so many startups. They would come to us and they would take our employees. And the rule of thumb is that a company can't function if it loses more than 15% of its employees each year. So, you know, running a company 
that's trying to grow its revenue, trying to grow its profit, it's trying to, you know, and um, anyway, you know, after seven and a half years and, and uh, a month after the launch of Salesforce, um, we were a NASDAQ 100 company, which I never dreamed would ever happen. Um, we grew 130% year over year. Um, we were highly profitable. Um, and I sort of achieved kind of everything that, um, you know, I ever uh, imagined I could achieve in my lifetime. Um, and that's when I stepped down and started working with um, um, the first CEO, uh, John Dill, and the first CEO of Salesforce. And then two and a half years later, uh, Mark Benioff, when, when he became CEO um, and spent four and a half years doing that before going back into the business of, you know, starting companies. What was the was like payment rails like happening back then? So for like publishing, I'm imagining like it was a little bit after that, you know, with oh no, that, and everything in the world that were there. Do you think that that was part of the reason that in that late '90s moment where it was like you couldn't monetize at point and click, where like five, eight years later it was totally ubiquitous? Well, no, no. Okay, well, well there were a couple things going on. Um, first of all, all of us were in a race to give away content. Uh, mm -hmm. is creating corrupted three um mag oh, the, actually i lost you real quick right there you said we were all in a race to give away content and i really yeah we were, we were basically in a, in a race to give away content right all, all of our content was free uh um, yahoo everything was free weather was free stock quotes were free it, we were all in a race to devalue content in a way. Um, and um, there was one particular um, writer for the New York Times who just could not help himself but write about how risky it was to use your credit card over the internet. He's just pissed me off no end um, because he was just making people afraid of something that they shouldn't have been afraid of. and. <clears throat> and you know, and put putting their credit card in and and uh, and and buying stuff, in part because they had a great experience, a great experience. Um, but it was everybody expected everything for free, so so nobody wanted to pay for 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 any content, and uh, none of us it didn't dawn on any of us to even try to charge for it. So. We all had advertising-driven. Um, we all had advertising-driven um, um, uh, models, and 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 now the world is like kind of inverted, um, where uh, people are buying streaming services, they're buying NFTs, they're buying you know all kinds of of content today. Uh, nobody would ever have done that in the '90s. I mean, the idea of paying for content. Uh, was just like, you know, no, no way am I ever going to, you know, pay for, yeah. I'm not going to pay for anything. Everything's got to be free. I kind of assimilate that a little bit to right now with, you know, the fear of understanding, you know, wallet addresses and, you know, people like in this space, everyone used to send test deposits all the time still, right? Yes. And it, that's gone away, but it's like, there's probably still people that do that. It's like, well, if if you put the if you copy and pasted the address and you put it in there, if it doesn't get there, it means that there's a much bigger problem going on, right? It means that Bitcoin right. the first time ever. And so, a, a question about content and delivery and like 
with like Netflix, right? Like Netflix just hit their kind of, they did this, you know, and now it's like subscriptions for the first time ever have flattened, right? And they've got this, I guess you could say, they, they talked about the password sharing problem a little bit. And I don't know how much leakage is actually there in their model, but doesn't that, a lot. Like, doesn't that seem like a perfect application for a little bit of what you guys are building where you could have this kind of login and you have the track record of that login and then you could update or change, or if there's new content that needs to be added, you can kind of update that, but you do have the uniqueness of like one person, one address. Uh, well, I mean, Netflix is interesting. We just did an NFT drop for uh, a show um, on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Web3 model, and and I'm, I'm really on the fence about this because there's a lot of value in distribution, right? There's a lot of value in me going to Netflix and Netflix showing me um, shows that I might be interested in. And having good algorithms to do that. Um, but somebody could very easily go around Netflix and put a two-hour movie uh, inside of the NFT that we have with the making of, et cetera, uh, and in a kind of web three way go direct to um, you know, go to direct to consumer. Um, I mean, a lot of people are talking about that, and we're talking to people about that who kind of have that vision. Um uh, you know, the hard part really is, is just, uh, is just distribution. You know, when you, these, these big streaming services, they have so many eyeballs that they have the ability to, um, you know, to, to generate a lot of viewership. Um, yeah. that, I mean, the uh, reason they let it run as long as they did, obviously it's more of a benefit to let people share and have that content be out there and then potentially try and convert at some point. I'm just, it seems like now is the time that maybe they're, this is probably the same conversation they're having, you know, 10 times a day over there of like, what, what do we do now? Yeah. Well, they are the most interesting company. One of the most interesting companies, you know, in the history of the internet, because nobody has counted them dead more times than any other company. <laughs> and um, I have to admit when they went from mailing CDs of movies to your house um, and uh, then you sent them back, uh, and that was their model to streaming content on the internet in something like 2000. I thought they were mad. I mean, it's like the internet doesn't support streaming, you know, movies. Nobody's ever going to do that. Yeah. Uh, kind of like no one's ever going to sleep on the, the couch in your house, like Airbnb. That's a, that's like a farce. It's like, yeah, ex well. ex exactly, <laughs> ex exactly. So, so I, you know, nobody has figured out. Um, how to survive and thrive more than Netflix has over the intervening, I don't know, 25 years. So they're, they're one of those companies that, uh, you know, I, I certainly would never count out in terms of finding a new, a new way of growing their business. Um, so we, TBD. So I, I want to ask you, so how did you get, did you say it was 32 gigabytes? In yeah. So how, how did you get 32 gigabytes onto the blockchain for each NFT? Well, we, we do two things. Um, we store on Filecoin um, and we have to do a lot of gymnastics to get um, the, the, the get, to get uh, the content uh, on, on, uh, on Filecoin. And um, it, it doesn't really support 
the speed or performance that would be necessary for you to click on a movie and watch it. Right. So we do centralized storage uh, for for caching and performance. So you've got you've got um, you've got centralized storage so that when you click the movie, it comes up, it streams fast, uh, the experience is good. Um, but um, we use IPFS and Filecoin for longer term store for for you know forever storage, whatever right. that ends up meaning. <laughs> um, so, so we use, uh, so, so we use both. Um, you know, if you get, um, if you get files that are, you know, reasonably large, uh, IPFS is just, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's not a solution that, um, um, that works. If you have small files, uh, it works fine. Um, but if you have really large files, uh, it becomes a problem. Large files are a problem anyway. Like we have to, you know, we have to figure out what, what happens when you turn off your phone, when you're in the middle of uploading 32 gigabytes. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a hard problem for everybody. It's just that Google and Apple and others have been thinking about these problems for, for, for decades. Um, so, um, so uh you know the i mean actually right right now the the I mean, the last couple of things that we're working on for for launching the app are, are are actually those you close down the app you open it back up do you really want to start uh a one gigabyte file uh over the 32 gigabyte limit is the limit that's actually um that's actually been put in place by filecoin uh, for each of our NFTs, um, they've been a good. They've been a very good partner of ours. Uh, we've worked very, very closely with them, um, and um, you know we think they're you know definitely the best solution uh, for really the long term storage of of, of content. Um, play a very vital role, and and I think uh, in the NFT space, and you know ultimately, and in, in ensuring the the longevity of of, of content. So is the innovation then there? Cause you're saying there is still a little cloud that needs to kind of, like you said, you're doing a little gymnastics to kind of get there. Um, is it, then is the innovation around quickly identifying where the files are that are attached to that specific NFT and being able to serve that, um, in a, in a fast way. So that as a user, it's like, you know, right now, if I'm on Instagram or Twitter, you know, I'm just swiping through. Right. And it's like, you're not going to wait for a, blockchain transaction, you know, to clear and yeah, yeah. Go for so the next a, file. It's like, yeah, we have, I mean, our, we have a proof of stake network, so it's instantaneous. Um, so, you know, we have, uh, we have, you know, miners, uh, we have miners who do video processing for us. We have miners who put, you know, do transactions, um, whenever we write to the blockchain and, you know, a lot of our NFTs, a lot, you know, you'll write to the blockchain 10 times, you know, because you add something, you add something, you add something, you add something. Um, but we're a proof of state net network. So um, we're highly, highly performant um, and, um, and uh, you know, significant um, um, uh, uh, processing through, uh, throughput that, you know, we um, really developed back in the days when we were trying to serve you know, figure out how do we serve uh, 
you know, how do we, how do we serve uh, 4K television out of a, um, you know, off of a group of distributed servers around the world. And so how does the, how does the token power that economy that you guys have built with the, the staking and then on, on the platform? Like, how does that, how's that looking right now? Yeah. So the token is used as gas, um, and, uh, for the platform, um, and, um, uh, we're in the process of sort of figuring out exactly what, what that is. That'll be a fixed amount, uh, sort of a floating amount. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and then, and then, um, uh, you know, when we launch, uh, the app, uh, it'll actually be free. We'll put a cap on the amount of data, um, that you can do, um, just because we want creators to come in. We want to incentivize creators to come in and start creating. We want to see what they do um, before we sort of figure out what's the best way to, to kind of monetize uh, the, the the ability to create. So we've got all these new tools that have been in the hands of creators they've never had before. Uh, we have no ability to really understand the kinds of things that people are going to are going to create. Um, so we'll make it easy. We'll go back to the 1990s model and make it free <laughs> for people. And then, right. uh, Start it over again, but to a global <laughs> audience and a much higher velocity. And so you guys are going to cover the gas. So you're, is your, what's the consensus for the token that is it EV, like, are you going to be also like EVM compatible or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. EVM compatible. Yeah. Great. And so I'm a, I'm a creator. I want to come in. You guys are going to cover my VID token gas for a little bit. Um, I now have access to 32 gigabytes of storage to create a non an advanced non fungible token. Yeah. Um, what what are some of the and you have access the... to, to Polygon, which is the first. Gotcha. Uh, which is uh, Polygon, and then um, you know we've done a lot of testing around OpenSea, but but we're on Polygon, so any Polygon marketplace could 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 take advantage of the fact that. Um, you know, we're now creating these advanced NFTs. And so are you going to have the VID token, which is going to be a token on top of Polygon? And then are you utilizing a standalone blockchain via like a Supernets? It, it ends up using both of our blockchains. Okay. Um, so uh, so you, the first thing you do is you write to our blockchain. And then the second thing that we do is that we then uh, remint on, um, on, on Polygon, but... Um, for certain reasons, like performance and other things for media, uh, uh, our blockchain still plays uh, a critical a critical role. So, um, so the, so the vid token is is continuously sort of used, um, and you know we we want to be, you know, kind of like a layer zero company where you can you know. You could take it from Polygon. You could bring it back on us. You can send it out over, you know, Solana, um, et cetera. Um, you know, ultimately, I mean, right now we've we've we built a lot. So, um, you know, we just need to figure out right now how all the things that we built are going to get are going to get used. It it takes a <clears throat> I feel like it takes a specific type of entrepreneur to really succeed in this space because you know if you think about all of the all of the problems that you had to solve with something like a, a CNET, right? And then you know you're on a new technology back then. With with it with Web three, it's you know not only do you have to build your audience, 
you know, build an epic product that people want to use. You know, you, you kind of have to work it in, you know, with some of the other boundaries that are there, like we're talking about oh, storage yeah. and delivery, and then also launching kind of a, a, a new token economy, which is an entirely new kind of like business model to get access to those things. And now we're talking to the next iteration of that, which is you're going through what a lot of other products are also going through right now of like, hey, is it going to be layer two and is it going to roll up? Is it, are we going to horizontally scale, which that's what it's kind of looking like the next 18 to 24 months is going to look like is all of these freestanding standalone blockchains for like application specific, super, like a lot faster, you're your own gas. And then whether it's a layer zero back across um, seems to be making the most sense because the, the bridges, like as we've seen, you know, very, very difficult, but it's, it's a whole new set of tools that are now going to be available to this next generation where I think before it was like setting up, setting up servers at the office or your house to run something. And then you had cloud. And then for blockchain, it's kind of the similar thing where it's like, oh, now I just have to like point and click over here and I'm standing mm -hmm. up by myself and I have this transaction speed. Yeah. I mean, for the first three and a half years at CNET, we had our own, um, we had our own, um, a data center because data centers didn't really exist. Um, you could, you could correlate, um, when CNET went down with the, uh, temperature in, um, San Francisco, it was the perfect correlation, uh, cause our servers were in rooms that weren't air conditioned. They just had fans. And so we, you know, we had some days where it hit 90 degrees and we'd have to shut down our servers cause they were too hot. It was a perfect correlation. Like if you wanted to know why CNET went down that day, really all you had to do is go look at the weather report in uh in san francisco <laughs> you so there's, some, there's some quant somewhere that traded off of something like that at some point <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not sure if you'll figure it out but uh, <laughs> but but that's what was going on so what what excites you the most right now you know we're coming out we're you know depending on who you are we could say maybe we bottom you know in in some of the markets right now and like as entrepreneurs, you know, you're always kind of looking at that as like, uh, we're all sitting here watching it and all the friends and everyone are going to start texting us here once everything moves up another 50%. But like, wh where do you see the next 12 to 18 months going in, in this space? And what are you most excited about for the industry as a whole? Look, I think it all comes down to innovation. Innovation has value. As long as you continue to innovate, you continue to create value. Um, and, you know, there's that perfect correlation between the value of companies and the level of innovation that they uh, that they that, that they're able to sort of bring. So, you know, whether crypto's up, crypto's down, whatever it is, uh, as long as the innovation continues. And 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 what I mean about that is, I mean, practical, useful innovation There's a lot of innovation is not useful. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, trying to decide how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, you know, really kind of customer focused innovation, um, you know, so long as that's what you're doing, then, um, you know, then, uh, then, you know, I think we'll come out of this, you know, stronger. And then we got couple minutes here just last question for you and i appreciate you you being on here it's, this has been super fun um it sounds like you you've done a lot of you've started a lot of things you've kind of started the venture studio where that was kind of like you guys entrepreneur in residence your own kind of entrepreneur in residence where you're spinning up your own stuff um yeah. what what do you think it takes 
it seems like you 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 love that first kind of start something from scratch, take it to a certain spot, you know, and then it's like maybe all the maybe there's bureaucracy that comes in that you're like I don't know or like there's all these things like what what does it take to be an entrepreneur from idea paper napkin to like product market fit traction a little bit there like what are what are some of those boundaries that you have to really push through and and know that hey this is something that I should continue with or man I got to scratch this one and go to the next thing um um you know yahoo and zenet were the two companies in the nasdaq 100 yahoo had somebody else who was running the company um who other than the person who started it jerry yang didn't didn't run it um i was one of the few i was um you know i was um, I, I mean, I've been one of the few people who's taken it from zero to being in the NASDAQ 100. Um, and um, it requires, uh, at a certain point, a very different set of tasks. And um, <clears throat> what happened was in um, 1997, I missed my numbers on Wall Street. My stock got crushed. And so I called in a professional um, CEO coach. And, um, you know, we started talking and, you know, I, I remember the, the one point, you know, cause he, he watched me and what I was doing. And, and, uh, I, I remember the one point that was kind of most, uh, sort of on point was I was having a marketing meeting and he, I wanted my head of marketing to be able to come up with all the right answers. And he goes back to, to um, my office and he goes, that's not her job. Her job is to get the right answers out of her group. Like you're still focused on the individual being able to solve the problem. And um, <clears throat> so I turned around and I hired um, Robin Woland, who started Parenting Magazine. And she was run, running the Sunset Publishing Division of, um, of Time Warner. Um, and I hired the um, the head of the business, the publisher of Newsweek, which was a big magazine back then. And um, <clears throat> and you know we went from missing our numbers to being a Nasdaq 100 company in late 1998. Um, and so you you realize there's just a uh, there's just a, a you you've got to flip your skills um, and, and you got to flip your interests. And quite frankly, the reason that I actually left in, um, um, I mean, the two reasons I left is one was the launch of Salesforce. Um, but but the other uh, reason I left is I showed up in my office and everything on my calendar were things that I hadn't booked. So my calendar was totally booked by the company. Um, I had no free will to decide what I was going to do with my days. And um and, and, you know, when I realized that, I realized, you know, you know, I've been spending seven and a half years, you know, running on the on the, the track machine of the uh, Internet bubble, you know, trying to trying to, uh, you know, keep everything uh, from 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 falling apart um, and, you know, had 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 managed to, you know, to, to, to build something that was um you know, important and, and now obviously long lived. Um, and, uh, and just decided that, you know, that really wasn't for me anymore. That's not, that's not, 
that's not what, what I want to do. But there, there, there is a, a moment um, that every entrepreneur has to uh, realize where the skills that got them to wherever they are are not the skills that are going to get them uh, to build a company that's still around 20 years later and, you know, earning, you know, significant amounts of money. Um, you know, that's that, you know, just, you know, maybe some people can realize that on their own. Um, for me, I need somebody to come in and teach me. And so it, it sounds like you go from hiring doers to hiring leaders. You hire doers to hiring managers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so, at, at, after those seven years, how did you realize, like, it was just the, the stock price that happened and you were like, I just need to talk to an executive coach. Or did someone say like, you know, I got someone that maybe you should talk to. I've been kind of watching the way you've been managing over the last seven years. I think this is a good person. Like, did you shop around for that person? Did you interview for that person? Like, what were some of the, no, I went to the HR <laughs> okay. and, uh, and, you know, I missed, um, you know, I missed my numbers and, and things kind of felt out of control. Um, you know, if, it, if, I mean, honestly, when a company's running really well, the CEO doesn't do anything. The other thing is I was also getting bored because, you know, um, you know, all the things I was doing, we're talking to employees and hearing about lawsuits and, you know, meeting with investors and, you know, news, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> um, but, um, but, but no, I mean, <clears throat> you know, when, when companies aren't, um, well run, people get into fights and arguments and, you know, you don't have a, uh, it, it, it's not an enjoyable place to work. Um, and so um, if it's properly managed, you know, people can, can be their best self, be their best selves. Um, they can achieve, uh, they can be rewarded for achieving. There's a, you know, there's a, a, a active process in place to find out who's performing and who's underperforming and make sure those are performing move up. There's just a lot of things that have to happen for, for to have a happy company. And, um, and those are not the things that get you your first 150 employees, you know, uh, up and running. So, you know, maybe some people, you know, are more clever than I, and they can kind of figure this stuff out on their own. Um, for me, I just kind of had to have this sensation that I was not like, you know, it was not working like it was before. And, uh, and I needed, you know, and I was willing to get help. And, um, you know, I'm generally not a big fan of consultants, but, um, but um, the person that that came in and helped me, uh, you know, really kind of transformed, um, you know, the way I ran the company and, and just, you know, I guess, part responsible for, you know, me being able to say I, you know, started an Aztec 100 company because I certainly wouldn't have been able to do that without him. It's it's amazing that, you know, you get there as a CEO or if you're your president or whatever your, your title is, it's you're trying to be there for everyone, you know, and you're you're the support system and, you know, your job ends up being is the company financed. Are people happy? You know, it's like it starts to kind of like you said, it gets to that point. And if everyone if you've hired all these great people and they're operating at some point, you're just like, hey, like guardrails a little bit there um just keep things moving but it's it seems like it's like companies like where, what do you think it is about certain companies that just continue to innovate and like is it the kind of jack welsh like hey we're gonna just always fire the bottom five percent and after 20 years we have 100 percent better workforce is it like you know you also see a lot of times when the founder leaves the vision 
leaves. Um, and there's different types of companies that can kind of push through that. So is there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, the good news is all of mine are still around. Um, so, um, I mean, literally all of them. Um, <clears throat> and bigger than when I left. <clears throat> um, I'll tell you a Jack Welch story because, because I actually met with Jack Welch because I started a search engine and uh, it was bought by NBC and became a four, $4 billion company. And I ran it for a while after it was sold to NBC. I had two jobs. Um, and I went and um, uh, GE owned NBC. So I was called to New York to meet with Jack Welsh. And um, uh, it was very interesting. Um, I said, uh, I said, you know, I think I'm, I've got things kind of screwed up because I've got 19 direct, uh, I've got 19 direct reports. Uh, he goes, I have 44. <laughs> and, and he could have said, I have a three handicap, which was actually true. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was, I was kind of shocked by that. And, um, and uh, he called it assistant inch, run his big book, you know, big, big book. And, uh, and in it were all his data. And there was, uh, um, you know, there were, there was data from performance. There was uh, company um, um, uh, surveys that people filled out. And he kind of went to page like 330. And he goes, look at this page. And so over the last 10 years, it was like, do you believe in man in, in senior management? It was like 55%, 60%, 65%, 70%, 75%, 80%, you know, and I think it was like 90%. And he goes, that I look at. And then he flips the page like 478. And he goes, do you believe that senior management understands the internet? And that was at like 32%, 37%, 35%, you know, 47%. You know, 47%. And he goes, that's why we're doing this. And, um, and he goes, that, that's how we're running the company. This is, you know, we, we need to understand the internet. We need to understand how it uh, affects our business. Um, and, uh, you know, he built a lot of uh, a huge uh, human resource infrastructure inside of the company to, to, uh, to help people kind of progress in their careers. But he had 44 direct reports. And, um, and I, I, was, <laughs> I was literally blown away by it such an amazing like qualitative way to steer the business right like here's the here's something we believe in and here's where the future is you know we've somehow come to that acknowledgement or that agreement. and so do the people that we have start to at least move in the direction to map towards that right it's not like hey we're going to just like lay off and, and lose a bunch of ip from those people that have been there for a while but hey like, can we either train those people into understanding what's going on and can they personally pivot? How do we do that? And then how do we bring in new people or acquire into that? But I love that, just that simple mapping of like, are we headed in this direction? Is the company mapping there? And here's how I know that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, everybody's data driven now because there's so much data, you know, I mean. I was think it a physical was... book? Like, was it written? In his book? Yeah, was it like written in there? Or no, was it, it like... was it was uh, one of those typewriter. Okay, yeah. You know, um, um, I mean, I, I mean, I'll tell you a story from 
from Salesforce. I mean, I mean, we uh, John Dillon, who was the first CEO, was really great. Um, he ran the company for two and a half years, um, and he he put together, which I'd never really seen in a small company, uh, a thirty-page um, document for every board meeting that every kind of um, ratio, um, employees to advertising, uptime to employees. I mean, it was it had everything had everything in. It. As it turned out, we ended up, you know, for several years running the company um, based on just one number. Um, we hit in 2002 before Mark came back. We had a month where we lost eight and a half percent of our subscribers. So if you annualize that, that's 100 percent. Now, we grew at 2 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent, 90 percent. I'm sorry. 2 million, 20 million, 50 million, 90 million. So we were growing quickly, but we were bleeding our subscribers. Some of that we couldn't control because they were they were startup tech companies that were going out of business. Um, but you know, understanding that that one um, ratio um, really led to uh, a whole bunch of changes in how the company was uh, was. Um, was operated. So we started um, compensating salespeople for uh, when customers renewed. Um, we started, um, people would stop using the product because there was a feature that they wanted. It was there, but they didn't know it. So we started doing better education. Um, people would, companies would have a bad month. So they would shut us off. Um, and we were month to month. So we started giving uh, so we started giving, um, um, uh, we started reducing the price if you bought uh, for uh, uh, four months, uh, six months, 12 months. Um, and that means if they had a bad month, they didn't, they didn't quit. Um, and by 2000, by June of 2004, when we went public, uh, we were down below, we were about 1% um, um, uh, turnover each month. I've lost you. Oh, there. I hit the, I hit the mute. There, there. I hit the mute button. So churn, churn was the nut was the KPI that you guys started attacking. Churn, and was, churn, churn was the, the KPI. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it, which is, I, I've kind of heard this from some people around. It's like once you find a KPI that's so important to your business that you don't want to tell people about it, right? You, then you've identified that i mean at that moment you guys were you guys were focused on engagement it was everything yeah it was everything i mean you know the company was five you know the company was firing on all on all cylinders but we had a major hole in our business um we were we were just you know we had companies just dropping through that hole and um you know um you know i mean you know you learn things like like you know the thing that we learned is is if we want a million of revenue, we need a new salesperson because the average salesperson generates a million in revenue. So if you want a hundred million in revenue, you need a hundred salespeople. If you want, yeah. yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think was Salesforce kind of the the pioneer around, you know, there, there used to be these, you know, large contracts that just get sold in software contracts, like the, you know, value was determined by how long and how large a contract potentially could be. But it was like, like you said, it was selling sixty dollar 
into middle management or like understanding where the numbers were for procurement that they can approve something. And like, you kind of like grew, it like grew from within the organizations that you were selling to versus having to go sell to the top where they, was that like a decision, like a, a business model decision that was made? Well, there? we did, we did grow from within the organization. Once we got in, we started, you know, doing customer service and other kinds of features. Um, but <clears throat> at that time, you wanted to put a CRM solution in your company. It was probably about $30 million in two years. Uh, and you needed to hire KPMG or Arthur Anderson. Or you need to hire somebody to come in and actually do it. Um, and I was looking at, at, at uh, I was looking at getting CRM software. And um, I mean, I was in, I was in the center of the computer industry. So I knew what was really going on. And I knew these, these big, uh, CRM projects were failing everywhere, despite the fact that Siebel at the time, who was a leader, said they had a 94% um, uh, satisfaction rate. And so, you know, I got a bid for, you know, it's going to take 18 months and $5 million. And I had to get a new database, a new database administrator and all this stuff. And, uh, and, and Mark came to me because at the time, CNET was in the top 10 in the world in terms of traffic. And like I said, I'd spun out this enterprise software company um, that uh, was growing, you know, vignette was growing at an incredible rate. So I knew the enterprise software business and I knew the, the, the you know, the web publishing business. Um, and uh, I had a, I had a ironclad um, uh, rule that I, I never invested in companies and I never went on other boards just so that I could focus on CNET and, and I, I broke both of those for Salesforce because I thought the, uh, you know, I thought I thought what it represented to the technology industry was important enough that I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted to watch it, um, and, um, um, you know, that's and, and you know it it, it uh, you know, I mean I, I found it uh, important enough even though there were many frustrating things with uh, security people. Um, constantly blocking us from being able to sell to a company, um, you know, that I, you know, ultimately left CNET and spent, you know, four and a half years, you know, doing a variety of things, trying to help the company, including funding. Well, Alzi, man, I, I really appreciate you being here and this, this sharing the stories with us and getting this out to the audience. Um, but th thanks so much for being here. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, check them out, vividlabs.com. And you said August 18th is the launch of the the apps right 17th 18th 17th 18th all yeah. right check it out vividlabs.com halsey man we'll chat with you back all right. thank you so much my man thanks